is culinary school worth it? I get asked this question all the time, and my answer is, maybe? It's really personal, and I can't say that there's a one-size-fits-all answer to this question. So people also ask me, would you go back and do it again? And to that, my answer is, I'm still not sure. I'm kind of torn. On today's podcast, I have culinary instructor Russ Zito from Johnson & Wales University, and we're going to talk about those things and a whole lot more. So if you are a culinary school student, have been to culinary school, or just want to kind of learn more about it, this episode's for you. My name is Chris Spear, and I'm the host of Chefs Without Restaurants, the program where I speak with culinary entrepreneurs and people working in the food and beverage industry outside of a traditional restaurant setting. So if you've listened to the show before, you might know that I went to Johnson & Wales University. I got a four-year bachelor's degree in culinary arts up in Providence, Rhode Island. The past few years on this podcast, culinary school is something we've talked a lot about. We've had some solo episodes titled, Should You Go to Culinary School? And it's a topic that keeps coming up again and again. Depending on who you speak to, people are on both sides of the fence about whether you should go, whether it's worth it or not. Whether you should go to a community college or spend the money to go to a top-tier school like Johnson & Wales or the Culinary Institute of America. I will tell you, we're not going to settle that debate. There is no settling because it's a very personal decision. But I've talked to a lot of guests on this show, and none of them have ever been culinary instructors themselves. Until today. Being a Johnson & Wales alum, I thought it'd be great to go back to the school and find one of my favorite instructors. So today I have Chef Russ Zito. I had Russ way back when I was in school, which was in like the year 96, 97, 98. He was actually my senior advisor who had to sign off on my externship project, which was my final semester in school. So thankfully, he passed me and I was able to graduate. Super appreciative of that. Thanks, Chef Zito. So like I said, I've talked to a lot of people about their opinions on whether or not you should go to culinary school, but I really wanted to have an instructor on. So I want to have Chef Zito on to talk about what Johnson & Wales looks like today and some of the things that have changed. I haven't been in culinary school in more than 20 years, and you know it's not really even fair of me to talk about the state of culinary instruction today. You know, I go back and think about the things that I was doing, like show foie and some of those things that might be kind of outdated. So I wanted to know, what are you doing? Are you doing new things like fermentation? You know, we studied a lot of Eurocentric cuisines, obviously French, Italian, all that. But is there any exposure to Filipino food or Ethiopian food? So I wanted to get Chef Zito on and kind of find out what they're doing at Johnson & Wales these days. Chef Zito came to Johnson & Wales by way of the Coast Guard. He was in the Coast Guard, and as many of you know, there's some great education programs when you get out of the military. So after attending Johnson & Wales as a student, he stayed on, went through their fellow and MDP program, which is a management development program, and then eventually became a chef instructor there. You know, it was really cool to hear about some of the things they're doing now besides just the culinary and baking programs. They have dietetics programs, sustainability programs, entrepreneurship programs. It's so much more than just a culinary school. And it was really neat to hear things like gardening. Chef Zito has a garden that he gets to attend with students. That's so awesome. I kind of wish I could go back to culinary school to do it all over again, but kind of not really either. So if you want to get an overall look at culinary school and you know maybe you're someone on the fence trying to decide if you want to go or not, I think this is a good episode to listen to. And feel free to reach out to me personally, because I've been there. I could talk you through some of it, give you my opinions. And again, there's days where I think, yeah, I'm so glad I went. And to be honest, there's days where I'm like, uh, I don't know if it was worth it. I'm still kind of torn, but you know, I'm at a place that I'm really happy in my life and everything worked out. So I am where I am. 
I actually enjoy talking to culinary students a lot. Uh, we have Frederick Community College here in Frederick, and I've been twice to talk to their students. And I try to give them a realistic overview of my experiences, both in culinary school and in the field up through today. And if you're a culinary school professor and want to have me come speak to your students, I'd love to do that. You can reach out to me. Uh, you can contact me at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. And this is the part of the show where I talk about sponsors. This show is made possible by the generous support of our sponsors. If you go to chefswithoutrestaurants.com forward slash sponsors, you're going to find all the info on our current sponsors, previous sponsors, and affiliate partners. With the affiliate partners, all that means is those are products that I use and love. And if you click on the links in my profile, I'm going to get a small commission when you buy stuff. And right now they've had so many great sales with Black Friday and Small Business Saturday and Cyber Monday. You know, it's a good time to go get 25% off Spiceology or whatever it is. But I'm most thankful for our podcast audio ad sponsors. So before this week's episode starts, you're going to hear from the United States Personal Chef Association and Mies. Please listen to those ads and then enjoy this show. Thanks so much and have a great week. Over the past 30 years, the world of the personal chef has grown in importance to fulfill those dining needs. While the pandemic certainly upended the restaurant experience, it allowed personal chefs to close that dining gap. Central to all of that is the United States Personal Chef Association. Representing nearly 1,000 chefs around the U.S. and Canada, USPCA provides a strategic backbone to those chefs that includes liability insurance, training, communications, certification, and more. It's a reassurance to consumers that the chef coming into their home is prepared to offer them an experience with their meal. USPCA provides training to become a personal chef through our preparatory membership. Looking to showcase your products or services to our chefs and their clients? Partnership opportunities are available. Call Angela today at 1-800-995-2138, extension 705, or email her at A-P-R-A-T-H-E-R at USPCA.com for membership and partner info. Are you still keeping your recipes in docs? Doing your costing in spreadsheets? Well, you should try Mies, the recipe tool designed for chefs by chefs. Founded by professional chef Josh Sharkey, Mies transforms your recipe content into a powerful digital format that lets you organize, scale, train, and cost like never before. See why Mies is loved by over 12,000 culinary professionals. Sign up for a free account today at getmies.com forward slash CWR. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash C-W-R. And on a personal note, I've been using Mies almost daily. I wish I had this tool years ago. The ability to quickly scale a recipe up or down, or to search across all recipes for a single ingredient like pumpkin. And if you really want to get an in-depth breakdown, I had Mies founder Josh Sharkey on the podcast a few months ago. That was episode 155, released in July of 2020. So go check it out to find out what Mies is all about. Hey, Chef. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely. Glad to be here, Chris. Man, it's been, what are we figuring, 26 years or so? I had you in 1997, 98 up at Johnson & Wales. Yeah, yeah we, were just, we were just talking about that. I did see you a couple of years back there at, at, at Drexel for the- Philly the, Chef. Uh, yeah, Philly Chef Conference. That was great. Well, I usually start the show by kind of talking about culinary backstory. So, like, how did you get into food and cooking? Everyone's got their origin story. What brought you into the kitchen? Most likely grandma, you know? How many times have you heard that? Quite a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's you know, ironic this year has really brought me back to that era. But, yeah, my grandmother. Well, let, 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 let's start this way. 
Um, I start some of my demos, my presentations, saying that I, I grew up culinarily challenged. Um, and I say that only because my mother was born in Glasgow, Scotland. And I don't know if you know anything about Scottish cuisine, but... A uh, haggis? Well, that's the national dish is a haggis, you know. It's a, what is it? It's a sheep stomach stuffed with all the organs from the cow and maybe some barley or oatmeal. I actually want to try that, though. Oh, I, actually, I've had some very good haggis, and I've had some haggis that, you know, was awful, officially. So I, I always start, you know, some of my demos saying, yeah, I grew up culinary challenge. My mother, my mother grew up making mince and ties, which was boiled ground beef with maybe an onion and some salt, sometimes some black pepper, and, and then you know, boiled potatoes that were always overboiled. And literally it's it's ground beef boiled in water. So that does yeah, not sound delightful. Yeah. No, no, it was it was it was not delightful at all. But I die to have a plate full of it right now. You know, you think back about, you know, those memories that, you know, maybe not so great on the food side, but just being around the table. And there's a lot of those food experiences that that get triggered by something to eat now that brings you way, way back. But that's how I got into cooking was my grandmother. You know, would be out in the garden. And, and yeah, I grew up in northern New Jersey, not too far from you. I spent my summers even closer to you on a little place called Long Beach Island out there on the, the Jersey Shore. And we had, you know, mint and tomatoes and uh, basil and all those things in the garden. We'd spend all day out there in the garden taking care of things. And, um, you know, we, we had the little the – little, toilet bowl out the front there with flowers in it. And that was that was like the Jersey Beach home kind of thing, you know. Uh, you pretended to be, well, I'm not even going to get into that, but, you know, who puts away you know, a toilet bowl in the front yard with flowers in it? <laughs> yeah, classy. Uh, you know where I'm coming from, right? And, and then we'd take that stuff inside and I'd be out in the dock. We had blue crab coming right out of the, you know, Barnegat Bay there and, you know, fish. We'd be out fishing and bringing sea bass and blowfish and flounder and fluke during the summer and you know, all this great stuff. And just remember being in the garden with her and coming in and then we'd pick crab meat and we'd do all sorts of stuff and make soup with the leftovers in the refrigerator. And, and that's how I learned cooking. I didn't learn by classic technique. I didn't learn by, I learned by let's take what we have and go into the kitchen and, and we're going to, we're going to dip it in that little, I think she used bisquick for the, uh, you know, the fluke batter. And she'd put a little paprika in there to give it some color. And but you know, all those things had flavor and she she had solid technique. We'd shallow fry right there at the stove in the kitchen. I just remember going up in the morning and you know, I'd be four, four thirty, five AM, nobody'd be awake, and I'd be out in the dock bringing in these little snapper blues, a little baby bluefish. And I'd have that thing cleaned and floured and in the pan with a little salt and pepper and some nice whole butter. And I'd be eating it before anybody else in the house got up. And that's that's my earliest memories of cooking. And, you know, it just progressed from there. Spent a lot of time on the water. We used to see all the guys in the Coast Guard boats out there. And somehow I got into the Coast Guard. Went to cook school with them. And through them, I got sent to a little culinary school in Charleston, South Carolina. It was called Johnson & Wales College at the time. I remember going into the admissions office and they were putting stickers on the catalog that said, Now a University. Now a University. And I'm like, huh, oh, it's kind of cool. Maybe... Maybe I'll go here and Coast Guard paid for some of that and, you know, the rest is history. Uh, you know, that brought me to the school and, you know, eventually made my way into the classroom. I went out into industry for a while. I worked with family business. I started a food service parts division. I was very technologically oriented. So I was, you know, I got into that side of the industry and 
came back as an adjunct faculty teaching in that food tech program. Remember the old C4 program we used to have there? Yeah, they they don't do the C4 program anymore, is that right? Well, they you know, not the way that they used to. In 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 the new era, we can't use the term C and 4 together cuz apparently that's a trigger. But um <laughs> so we have the culinary baccalaureate program now, is okay, what we call okay. it, which is a lot harder to say and takes a little bit longer, but yeah. Uh, so we do have a version of that classic four-year culinary program, that executive chef, you know, sous chef kind of training program, but it's um, it's yeah, it's called something else now. It's called the culinary bachelor's degree program, the four-year culinary program. We we avoid everything close to C and four together now. But yeah, understood. Yeah. <laughs> well, what made you want to be a teacher? Because I think that takes a certain someone. Not everyone who can cook can teach. I mean, by nature, I think a lot of people who are in leadership roles in the kitchens, you end up teaching. But it's very different teaching your line cooks how to cook uh, versus, you know, having 20 kids in a kitchen. So what? why did you want to do that? Every day in the kitchen, you're teaching whether you know it or not, right? You know, you're you're showing somebody a technique, you're showing somebody something to get to get the job done that day. You're showing something that's gonna, you know, that's gonna help them improve their technique to make them, uh, you know, give them the ability to do it faster or better or cleaner or whatever whatever it is. And you know, we always did that. Um, I always thought teaching would be a great job for me when I got done with my time in the industry and I was feeling the you know the the aches and pains and I was getting older and you know, my bones were weary and I'm like, you were ah, still yeah, young I'm though. I mean, you weren't like, you make it sound like, how old were you? When I was, you well, I teaching? was. I mean, you were, you and were I, not and that And that's old. why I, I was, I was blown away when I found my way into teaching that early in my life. I always thought that was something I, I, you know, I'd go back to later on. So, I, you know, I went to Johnson Wales. I started in Charleston in 1988 and I made my way through culinary school there. I was still in the Coast Guard. I was doing a, a reserve uh, weekends and, you know, my two months in the summer, uh, my two weeks in the summer. And uh, I was in Charleston, South Carolina. So we had the, the Air Force Base shared the the, uh, the airport there in Charleston. So I used to throw my uniform on the weekend. I found a military airlift flight that left Charleston every Thursday afternoon, right after we got out of class. And I'd go up to the Air Force Base and I'd jump on a, a MAC flight. And that Mac flight just happened to go through uh, the the um, Hampton Roads area, Virginia. So Norfolk uh, NOB one week, and it went to Oceana Naval Air Station the next week. And then that plane went over to Rota, Spain, and then it came back on Sunday afternoon, right when I had to go back to school down in Charleston. And I had a great bartender job up in Virginia Beach before I had started school. My parents had left New Jersey, retired. Uh, my stepdad retired from the post office. My mother, I don't think she ever worked per se. She was always working something, working it. But um so they moved to Virginia Beach, kinda semi retired. So I, I used to fly home every weekend. It was free flight. I, all I had to do was put my uniform on. Uh, I was Coast Guard Reserve at the time. So I probably was the first one to get bumped anywhere. But I had this great bartending job in Virginia Beach. I fly home every weekend and I um sit up one night and I see this advertisement comes on for Johnson Wales uh University in, in Norfolk, Virginia. I'm like Wait a minute! I've been going to school in Charleston for almost nine months now, and these guys never told me. And they all knew I was going to Virginia on the weekends. Never told me there was a campus in the in the town right next door to where I was. So I transferred up to Norfolk, and then from there, I uh, you know I got into the teaching assistant program because they were willing to give me money to continue my school. And from there, uh, we couldn't stay in in Norfolk because they only had the two year program there. I did one year as a TA. And I had to transfer to uh, Providence for my senior year. Got up there. I did my fellowship. And they're like, hey, get into the MDP program. Sure enough, I got an MDP. 
uh, you know, I don't know if you remember the, the whole MDP. It was a management development program. I did never did any of that, but I did work study at Pine Street. So like that oh, was yeah. the place where everyone hung out. You know, I pulled the Thursday through Saturday night shifts there yeah. with, you know, everyone would finish up their shifts or wherever they were working and come in for wings and beer till, you know, one in the morning. Yeah, that's when we, we still had beer on campus. We've been a dry campus for a long time. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, not necessarily that bad. We still have that educational liquor license. We brew beer. I'll tell you, even though the dorms were dry – I've seen otherwise. <laughs> Were you in South Hall? <laughs> but um, yeah, so I found my way up to Providence, probably not long before you came up there. I was there uh, 91, 92. I had a brief uh, episode there where I got recalled for the first Gulf War. I had to report to Yorktown. I got shots, new uniforms. And five days later, when they found out I was a full-time student, they sent me back to school. I was like, whew. And, uh, you know, so I got done there and, and uh, I transferred up to uh, Providence for my, uh, my senior year. We had taken community college classes that were guaranteed transfer credits. That's the agreement that they had at the time. I did the MTP. I finished my master's degree in 94. And I, uh, I, my father had helped me buy a computer to do my grad degree, write my master's thesis. And you know, back then, computers were like, I mean, they were like the size of this whole countertop here and so I, I stopped to see my dad on the way out and said, hey, I got this computer. I don't need it anymore. You know, yeah, Maybe you can use it in the office. My dad had a small uh, machine shop business in northern New Jersey. So he had a, a rather older secretary working there. She was still on the, on the typewriter with the five-part carbon invoices. And they had all this paper all over the place. And I'm like, you know what? I can, I can streamline this a little bit. We can get some NCR forms and Type the invoice, the uh, packing slip, and the in the work order all in one shot. And he's like, "Really?" So we ended up putting an accounting package in, and I did some things with them. And you know, like five years later, I was still there. I had blown off two job offers, and and I stayed in the family business, and I started a food service parts division. And all of a sudden, I don't know. We had sixty accounts, and I was doing like you know a quarter million dollars in extra sales a year over what he was doing before. And I just ended up staying there for five years. And uh, I started, you know, obviously in the food service parts division, I was getting into food equipment and you know, a little more technology. And, the, you know, I was still in touch with the people at Johnson & Wales. And they had started that, that, um, that four-year culinary program. And they had a class called Food Technology and Design. And I'm like, all right, that's cool. You know, they asked me to come up and maybe consult on the class a little bit. And I had one of my old TAs, uh, one of my old MDPs that I had worked for as a TA, was uh, teaching the class and he was getting ready to leave. He took a job with um, one, one of our big uh, you know, equipment suppliers. He took a job with them. And I ended up coming up and teaching his class as an adjunct professor. And lo and behold, I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And I'm like, wow, teaching, you know, was probably five years out of uh, my master's degree at Johnson Wales. And I got in with some really great chefs. You know, all the guys that were up there. I was like, wow. I mean, thousands of years of experience in, in one little school there. Uh, if you added all their years in the industry up, and uh, I learned a lot, and I, uh, I, I kept learning a lot, working with them as a, as a faculty member. Did some adjunct work. Eventually, uh, Chef Vienne, I don't remember, Michelle Vienne. Yeah, absolutely. He hired, hired me on full-time. We just lost him this past year. We've lost a lot of our great chefs over the years. Oh, my God, Lipa, all these great chefs that you remember working with and having in class. You know, they're, they're all at that age now. Anyway, yeah, so I 
That's how I got back into teaching. It was a long road through all kind of windy paths, and and uh, but it, it was all through that network of chefs that I stayed in touch with over the years. And you've been there like consistently since twenty six years. I'm in my twenty sixth year. Wow. Yeah. Well, it must be something you really enjoy and, and oh, love. Oh, yeah. You have no idea. But it's changed. It's morphed a little bit in those 26 years. Well, yeah, I want to hear a little bit about that. <laughs> well, you yeah. know, it, it's really I'm interesting. I'm sure you do. <laughs> I do. I'm really intrigued. But, you know, it's one of these things we talk about on the podcast so often about whether you should go to culinary school or not. And that's a very personal choice. You know, it it depends. Like, you can't have just a yes or no answer. But I do want to talk about some of those topics a little bit because it's yeah. such a hot topic. People always ask me, would you do it again? What do you recommend for me? I don't even know where to start. But I guess I would say, like, who do you think is a good candidate, especially to go to a, a top-tier school like Johnson Wells? There's all different levels. But who is this school best suited for, in your opinion? Well, I mean, today – very much different from what it was uh, when you and I went through there. You know, back then it was you know we were we were training cooks. We were training using classical based French cooking methodology and techniques. I mean, right back to Auguste Scoffier himself. You know, that was that was the the basis, the Bible. That's that's what we taught. And although that's still the foundation for a lot of what we do today, our student is very different. Back then we were training cooks. You got done. You got a job working on the line. If, if not, you're working the line while you're in the restaurant. We didn't have class on Fridays for that very specific reason. On the weekends, you're taking what you learn in the class during the week. You go out, you get a job with a, with a local restaurant, and you work Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in that restaurant. And then you come back on Monday and you do some more technique. And the curriculum was designed that way. That's still to this day, we have no Friday labs. And it's crazy because you got that $52 million culinary center there with nobody in on Fridays. You know, sometimes we do some extra classes and things like that, but uh, phenomenal. But, um, you know, back then we were training cooks. Today, man, I got I got students that are uh, from every walk of life and have plans to go in every part of the industry, even some parts unknown to even you and I today. Um, you know, two years ago, we started a sustainable food systems program. You know, 26 years ago, you know, sustainable was get your butt in the kitchen and get the food out because we have a deadline to meet and let's get it done. And today it's very, very different. You know, you got those, those major pillars of uh, resource recovery and, and, uh, you know, energy conservation and water conservation and being sure that, you know, what we're doing is not harming anybody or harming the environment and that we're able to keep the business open and that we're working on, you know, hyper local food products and that we're, uh, you know, hiring equally and, you know, cooking for equality. And I mean, there's so many things that we have to look at today that you didn't think about 26 years ago. And are those coming into like an associate's degree program? Like, do you touch on those kind of bigger issues or is that we more have to get a into a bachelor? four-year program in sustainable food systems. Wow. We have a full four-year program in uh, applied dietetics and nutrition. We have a full four-year program in, in uh, product research and development, a full four-year program in you know, spa, chef, healthy cooking slash, you know, healthy cuisine. Uh, and that's not to mention any of the programs that are in our hospitality, uh, you know, college as well. Plus that four-year culinary program, uh, which is more of an entrepreneurial type thing. You know, we do fast casual restaurants. We do a little more fine dining restaurants. We attack all those different spokes. But all those students have one thing in common. Well, maybe two because we also have the pastry program. They all start in that first common freshman year of core culinary 
cooking concepts. You know, any any student in those two programs or those two first year programs can branch into any one of those baccalaureate uh, programs. But when you get somebody that comes in and they want to be a applied dietetics and nutritionist and they want to get their registered dietetics, uh, you know, certification and licensure and all that stuff, they're looking at that freshman year very differently from somebody that wants to own their own restaurant or somebody that wants to get into uh, product research and development or somebody that wants to get into uh, owning and running their own chain of food trucks or whatever it is. So we have this wide variety of students that come into the program now, which is very different from what we had 26 years ago because everybody was going to be a cook when they got out. Yeah. I only met my wife because she went to Johnson Wales to be a dietitian. She actually would have been the first graduating and she ended up not doing it there. So she was there and got her associates in culinary with the plan to stay for two more years. But I, I don't think she quite was ready to make that commitment to be a yeah, dietitian. Yeah. And it costs so much money. And I think there's some skepticism about like being the first graduating class. Like, well, yeah. how's the curriculum? And would it even be a they couldn't even tell if it was going to be accredited. You know, so she's like, I'm just going to bounce after two years of culinary. But she ultimately went back and got her um, bachelor's in dietetics at another university, which is how we end up in the Philadelphia area. Um, but how, how have the culinary courses changed to kind of keep with the times? Like I think about courses like Garmage, where you're doing things like chauffeur and stuff that just seem kind of like outdated to me. Yeah. And then, you know, I go to the Philly Chef Conference and they have classes on fermentation where the kids are making like koji made charcuterie and kombucha. Like how has the culinary program at Johnson & Wales evolved to keep with those times? Well, I can tell you that we still had some of those old time chefs that, that, that did that Garmage program. And again, there's always those foundations in classical cooking and I mean, so far, I haven't seen that in a hell of a long time. But, uh, you know, the New York Food Show, they're still putting that on display at the Javits Center with your hot foods presented cold. And, you know, you still got the classic. That's a whole different style of cooking. Like the whole ACF, like old country club guys, you know, people still doing out that. And and some of it looks, you know, Bocusta or that stuff looks really cool. But, you know, what percentage of people really are going to be focusing on that kind of stuff? Well, it's that percentage of people. And that's. Yeah. Pretty much it at this point. You know, let's you get one of those classic clubs or you get a cruise ship where they're still doing that kind of that old style, big, big centerpiece, ice carving, buffet kind of thing. And and there's they're very few and far between. But today, I can tell you, we've taken that to a little more modern approach where we're doing a little more of those canapé slash tapas slash chiquetti kind of presentations with the small plates and how a lot of restaurants are doing those today. Uh, using those classic techniques and still doing the pâtés and maybe some of the terrines and some of the force meats and really have upgraded that Godmanche specifically that program to what we would call like a, an advanced buffet catering type class today where, you know, they'll learn to make force meats, but we'll make a force meat in a pâté. We'll make a force meat in a, in a, in a terrine. We'll even make a force meat and put it into a sausage casing and present it three different ways. Um, same flavor profile, same grind, same process but three separate applications that can be used to present a buffet platter or put on a small plate or put into a canopy or put into a, a braise or a stew or something else. So it, it becomes very uh, flexible and a lot more versatile. 
People still love charcuterie. Charcuterie's still big, like in all Absolutely. the restaurants, you know, and it's such a skill. I guess it's just like modernizing how it's going to be presented. Well, that's it. It's more about the presentation and the portion size and the way that it's presented and, and pairing it up with different uh, pickled vegetables and things that we do and, and a little bit of the maybe a house-made mustard as opposed to, you know, pulling a whole grain out of the, the storeroom or something and, and um, you know, doing some some finer crackers and little details that go along with that and then obviously getting a nice cheese and and pulling that all together and turning that into into uh, a highly sellable uh, program in your restaurant and understanding the costing of it and the portioning of it so that's that's where that garbage a class has come to today it's very uh you know modernly applicable to any restaurant in the in the way that we brought it together and have you changed the array of cuisines that are covered because you know it, it was always very classical and i'd say eurocentric you know you're definitely doing french and italian and german and all that but now when you think about like people are really into ethiopian food or you know russian cuisine or filipino like are has the has the curriculum evolved to kind of incorporate more of that stuff absolutely it's had to and although the techniques are still classically based you know you remember back then we had classes like traditional european Pian cuisine, that was the braising and the stewing. You know, all the classes are based on those classic French sauces, the you know, the bechamel and the espagnol and the hollandaise and the, and uh and now we have classes like, well, in the interim we had something called global a la carte, where we got a little more and, and then we went into you know uh different processes where we looked at fifteen days, you look at fifteen different international cuisines. Whereas once it was classical French we went from classical French to classical French and Italian. Now we're covering everywhere from South and Central America to North America to the Southeast to the Middle East and, and everywhere in between. And it's such a brief overview. I mean, there's no way you can get any kind of comprehensive education on that. I, You know, we had continental cuisine for nine yeah. days, like whatever the <laughs> hell that means. And it's really funny because the one thing that stood out is I remember my practical was I had to make sour broughton, which I'd never heard of. And I, you know, usually had like one day lead time on your practicals, but they gave us three because I had to marinate. And it was the worst grade I ever got on practical because it was quote unquote, not sour enough. I think that was Chef Baruby, like, Baru going, oh, yeah. like going way back into my mind. But that was one of those dishes that I never made again until I moved to like Pennsylvania it's so funny. It's become one of my favorite dishes. But I thought, there's no way in the world I'm ever going to make this thing again. Like, this is crazy. Why are we learning this? Right? Yeah. But, you know, you just had like one day of like German cooking and I learned like one dish. So you're not ever really getting an in-depth of anything. Even when you have a course that zeroes in on one cuisine, like nine day, you know, nine day labs, like you're just not going to be able to tackle that. So I think it's really good to get an overview. Um, but, you know, what I tell people is, what you think you want to do when you go to culinary school, like you don't know. You know, I was 18 years old and I graduated when I was 22. And what you thought, what I thought I was going to do is not even close to what I'm doing. And what yeah. I was interested in, the classes, like nutrition, I was like, what's nutrition? You know, like they they made you take it. And then, you know, I, I became a vegetarian for a number of years and was really interested in healthy cooking. And just the butchery and 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 all of the things that you experience as you're going through culinary school and maybe getting involved with a club or you know doing an event with a, a fraternity where you did some some good and helped uh you know it, it didn't matter what it was when you came to culinary school you're like man this is not what i thought i was going to be doing and when you get done three four years later or you know some of our students take five or six years to get through there you, you get introduced to so many more aspects of the industry that you didn't know existed 
And that was back then. Just imagine today. I mean, we have students in the sustainable food systems program that are going to have job titles when they graduate in three or four years that don't even exist today. Who understood what a uh, supply chain specialist was in the food industry anyway, just a few years back or, or a, um, a sustainability uh, officer? You know, maybe all these fast food restaurants have these you know, sustainability officers now. What do they do? Well, they make the business more sustainable by looking at their energy use and their uh, resource use and how they handle their waste. And I mean, nobody thought of that stuff back then. Or if you did, it was just ancillary to the job that took place every day. I mean, who had compost buckets in the kitchens 20 years ago? Actually, where I did my internship, we did, which was the first time, it's first and only time I ever saw that because I was out in Minneapolis and they, you know, that stuff was going back to the farms, actually. So I don't know if it, you consider it compost buckets or like or feed piggy buckets, bu- right? We call them piggy buckets because all ours go to the Johnson pig farm now. Yeah, right? we had to scrape into to bins there. But um, yeah. yeah. So let, 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 me, let me throw this at you. Since, since we started the sustainable food systems program, I'm teaching classes called Growing for the Menu. Cooking from the farm stand. These are classes that never existed back then. I'm teaching, I'm teaching culinary students how to grow their own food. I have a gardening class. Phenomenal. I'm having the best time of my entire 26 year career in these last couple of years because we're going out and taking shipping pallets from the loading dock and building raised beds out of them. And I'm filling with compost from a Casella Organics who takes food waste and turns it into 100% organic compost for me. And they bring it back to me and we put seeds in the ground and we grow these things out and then we pick what we grew and we go right back into the kitchen. We write menus around it. That's more fun than I've ever had in 26 years. That takes me right back to grandma's garden and going into the kitchen and cooking that stuff. I'm just missing the crab meat right now. Almost makes me want to go back to culinary school. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it makes me want to go back. Fortunately, I'm there already. So, <laughs> and what are your thoughts on, say, like a community college? You know, there's a huge gap. So, looking at, you know, the finances of it, what you want to get out of it, there's a lot of smaller programs at places. I mean, how do you choose? And again, and again, very personal thing, but just kind yeah, of looking at that. Like, it, have it you, is seen, good, I, you, know, have I have you seen good programs? Do you recommend those for a certain person? Working for the school, I have to be careful how I answer sure, this. Sure, sure. No, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when I went to school, there was, I don't know, three, four culinary schools that you had to choose from that, that were, you know, the big schools. You had, we had Johnson & Wales. We had that other school. That we always call the other school. Yeah, there's some uh, other school. That, with some down other in New York. Yeah, <laughs> it was a Hyde Park, I think it was. Then you had the the, the West Coast, uh, yeah. California Culinary. California Culinary, and and uh, man, I remember when I first looked at at the other school down there in New York. See, we can say CIA. Um, they were still in New Haven, Connecticut. I mean, we had faculty at Johnson Wales that went to CIA in New Haven. So think about that for a minute. So a lot of people didn't even know that they, they originally started in New Haven, Connecticut. I didn't. I'm just learning this now. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going back to well, I was I was I was in high school in the in the early eighties, you know, and there's folks that are still here that were students in the seventies at Johnson Wales. I think any training um that you can get in conjunction, any formal training where there's a formative process and there's an assessment and there's an evaluation of your your capabilities is going to only bolster what you can learn out there on the job and really kind of back it up 
There's so many great programs out there. And I can tell you my sentiment behind it all is that we had two or three big schools back in the 70s and the 80s that were turning out a lot of culinary students that went into the industry and worked for many years. And, and a lot of those students are finding a way into teaching today. Now, if they haven't found a way into teaching 10 or 15 years ago, and a lot of those programs are in existence because of the skills and ability of a lot of our alumni and our students that we put out there. If you go to any, any, any one of those smaller programs, I guarantee you there's one degree of separation from a Johnson & Wales or a CIA or a California Culinary or a NECI or any one of the big schools back then, alumni. Had to be, or they're tied to the ACF, or they're tied to the Research Chefs Association, or they're tied to one of those organizations that was formed or, uh, you know, founded by or populated by students from those programs. So it's all interconnected, and I, I, I believe it's, it's all fabulous and amazing. And, you know, every student has to make their choice, and it's based on their background, their capability, their monetary capability, you know, financial aid. You know, I'm hoping with the way some of these things are going out, we, we get a little bit of tuition assistance and a little bit of reprieve on some of that stuff. But Well, that I mean, that's the hardest thing. And and when people ask me if I would go back, my doubt or my reservation is the fact that I still remember the numbers and regular listeners to the show have heard this before. My student loan repayment that I personally had and my parents and I were paying along the way was $404 a month for 10 years. That's a lot. Like, and I came out and I was getting job offers at $8 an hour with a four-year bachelor's. I mean, you know, this was like 20-something years ago. Like, $404 was like half a month's rent or like a car payment. And I had to make choices based on the finances of that. You know, when you want to go work at this really cool restaurant, but they want to pay you peanuts, you know, I end up working at Or not at pay a, you at all. You know, or not pay you at all. Yeah, 100%. Make family meal and you can watch service. I ended up working at a retirement community. Now, that was great, but that shaped my whole career path because it was like they were offering me eleven fifty an hour and two weeks vacation and, you know, retirement and all kinds of stuff. And, you and know, a fairly no, normal work week. And fairly normal work week. And I jumped at it. And a lot of people say, so I've literally never worked in a restaurant, chef. Like, li that's why I have chefs without restaurants. I got out of school yeah. in 1998 and I've literally never worked in a restaurant. Like my whole career path has been retirement communities, catering, Ikea, R&D, personal chef. All right, Chris, you ready? Why do you think Johnson Wales has so many of these programs today? Because the restaurant industry is tough. <laughs> you know, in a nutshell, becoming a line cook is not sustainable through culinary school. But that's going to impact the industry, the restaurant industry. Is We want to produce managers. We want to produce entrepreneurs. We want to produce people that are going to go and become dietitians and are going to pave the way, write new policy for the USDA and for the school food systems and, and all these things. And that's why we have so many programs today. Um, you know, we're not training line cooks anymore. And, you know, some of our chefs still don't, you know, they have a hard time with that. Uh, some of our alumni have a hard time with that. Oh, you guys can't cook. I mean, but it's not about the cooking in this war. It's about that culinary foundation, those basic core competencies in cooking and skills. Uh, we, we're, not, we're not training line cooks. I can tell you that right now. But what does that mean for the restaurant industry? I mean, I still love going out to eat. And I mean, do we just have too many restaurants out there? I look at the restaurants and they're all 
hiring and they're all having challenges and they can't find people. Like I don't think there's ever too many restaurants. There's always going to be good ones. There's always going to be restaurants that are that are learning and growing and and, and working to 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 be better and become bigger. Uh, there's always going to be small hole in the wall places that are uh, you know those those hidden gems. I think everybody has a place in this industry. The food trucks and the the little kiosks in the airport, where, wherever it is. There's somebody's going to find their niche, but the big culinary schools like us, I, it's just, it's not sustainable to have a student come to us and then take a job for $15 an hour as a line cook in a, and, and there's always going to be students like that. There's always going to be students that want to be in those, those boutique, you know, restaurants working with the, you know, the, the Ackett's and the Kellers and the, you know, the, the big name chefs and, and yes, they're going to do well there. They're going to succeed if they if they stay on that path, um, and they're going to have student loans to repay. That's what I thought I wanted to do. You know, I think I mean, but again, the times are so different. What else would you do? You know, as I'm getting a four year bachelor's in culinary, of course, I want to go work at the best restaurants. For my externship, I applied at Charlie Trotter's and was accepted, and at Emeralds, and just like the finances of that didn't work out either because they were unpaid internships where I would have to pay for my own housing. And I ended up having a great experience working at a hotel in Minneapolis. You were my senior advisor. I think you had to sign off on my final grade. Thank you for helping me graduate. <laughs> There's so many opportunities like that that don't have to be. Yeah, I have to tell you, when I advise my students that are looking for internships, I'm like, yeah, you can go to the in Little Washington. You can go to you know, the, the two-star Michelin, you can go to these great places, but you're not going to get the same experience that you're going to get uh, at a place where, you know, maybe your existence at that location is, is valued a little differently. You know, that position is not as sought after because there's not 800 people vying for that one unpaid internship because that's where they think they want to be. Um, so as an advisor, student advisor today, you know, I, I'm going to say go go for the, the, the country club job where there's three or four internship positions. Go to a big hotel where you're going to get that real experience, you know, handling volume cooking in a quality setting with a good chef and maybe even an alumni. I think you're kind of feeling what I'm talking about here. Yeah. I mean, I probably would have hated Charlie Trotters. Like as much as I that was like the pinnacle of fine dining, from everything I've read about him and how that operated, that's not how I think I like to be led, you know? And, that's and not I the don't, mainstream restaurant industry. And I don't think that's, it would have worked. So I went to work at this hotel where like literally the first day there I walked in and the chef's like, hey, you know, nice to meet you. Can you make a fruit and cheese platter? And I was like, how, how do you want that? He's like, I trust you. You know, like that was my experience was like, he's like, the platters are there, the stuff's in the fridge. Show me what you got. That was day one. That's it. And I and just that's the majority was, of the industry. And was given like some leeway to do my thing. And then the sous chef came out after and says, you know, good, but I would tweak this and that. And and then the next day it was like we had a restaurant there and it was working the line. So are you ready to work the line? And, you know, we're not going to let you sink, but jump on in. Tickets come up, you know, and had me going from day one where some of these bigger places, you're just going to be peeling potatoes and you're free and, labor. And watching so, service for three months. Yeah, I had an yeah. amazing experience and I learned so much on that externship. I'm so glad it worked out the way it did. And I can tell you, I would advise any of my students that were looking for something like that today to do the same thing. And I think most of our, our faculty understand that. There's always those students who are going to want to go to those great places. And I have experiences like that all the time with a chef – I literally, I made, I made, I chopped veggies and I did, I, I peeled potatoes and, and I, uh, I made, and I made 
you know, a staff meal and, uh, and I got to watch service and that was it. And I, I really didn't feel like a valued part of the team. I didn't learn a lot because um, I wasn't doing a lot. Uh, and I, I would always advise our students to, to really pick something that's going to be a little more uh, beneficial to them um, without the prestige, but with, you know, that, that kind of perceived value of having an intern there. And there's so many programs that, you know, there's a shortage everywhere. And a lot of our students, if they're going to line cook, they're going to line cook while they're in school. They're not going to line cook maybe after school unless that's really where they want to go. And uh, you you have to learn to pick and choose those those spots that are really going to be uh, sustainable for you. And it's hard to do because every student is different. Every location is different. I just thank God that we have so many alumni out there that are willing to take our students in because they know what they've been through. They know what the program consists of. And, and they know what the, some of the other schools do as well. So they're, they're always going to be welcomed. They're always going to be uh, taken in and they're always going to be uh, seen as a valuable member of that team. If I send them to somebody I know understands our program. And, and that's what we try and do. And I try and tell everyone this is like, one, you get out of it what you put into it. But I think I was too focused on grades. And I think people still are, you know, like, depending on how you were raised, but like, I was taught you're supposed to get good grades. Like, and I have to say, it didn't matter. Like, there's not like a single person who ever even actually asked to see a transcript or a copy to prove that I went to culinary school. Like, nobody ever was like, show me your degree. But just knowing personally, like I was in a class, I wanted to get an A. And if there was a choice where I could do this fish that I don't know how to do or do the steak, like I sometimes took the easy road. I I can admit that. And I wish that I had said like, you know, I don't want to fail, but I should have said, I have no idea how to butcher a flounder and I need to know that. So let me do that and maybe I'll get a C on it. But I'll learn as opposed to like, oh, I know how to butcher chicken. So let me do the chicken because so much of the classes are group work where you're divvying it up yourself. You know, you've got eight things you got to make four people and you pick. And it's like, I think there's a tendency to maybe gravitate towards what you know and are comfortable with. So you can kind of skate on some things and come out of school and say, man, I, I really am like I was not great at butchering fish. And it took me a number of years. And in hindsight, I really wish I tackled those things. Getting out of your comfort zone is something that a lot of people have an issue with. You know, they say the number one fear in in, in the world today, or U.S. or you know, whatever it is, is is that fear of public speaking. Yeah, and they made us take that class in school. Yeah. I think that was a, a bachelor's class, but I, that like that was so terrifying to me. And yeah, I think it's terrifying to everybody. But also butchering a fish for the first time is probably pretty terrifying for a cook. Yeah, that is well. for anybody. Or learning how to cut a, a perfect strip steak or taking this, you know, $180 piece of meat and breaking down, you know, your, your chateaus and getting your tornadoes. And you know, just think, think of what you do if you hack a beef tenderloin today. I mean, what what's the price of that versus what it was two years ago versus what it was 15 years ago? It's, like, it's ugly right now. Oh, really my God. Ugly. It's crazy. So, yeah, I think everybody would probably prefer to take the route that they know versus – you know, go for something new. And if, if your grade's depending on it, I would say that's that's probably going to be the majority of people. But there's always those outliers. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to say any of the classic sayings about what gets degrees. <laughs> I think just 
the ability to go through a training program like that and and see the demonstrations and being able to attempt to replicate those demonstrations and then you know re- repetitively do that process is only going to make you better no matter whether you got an A, a C, a B or something in between uh, you know just the experience alone is is invaluable you know a lot of people learn from their mistakes and a lot of mistakes are made in culinary school and that's probably where you want to make them yeah, I only know what horseradish looks like because it was the one thing I missed on my storeroom. <laughs> you know, he t- he took out that bucket of like four hundred things. Who was that, I Jimmy never- Fuchs? Yeah, and I had I had never seen horseradish before, and I missed it. So you know, it's kind of burned in my mind what it looks like. Well, if you if you were not doing what you do, what would you? Is there anything outside of the culinary world that you could see yourself doing? Do you have any hobbies that could overtake? Or is it just like ride or die with the culinary life? I don't know if it's ride or die. <laughs> I, I, I often think back about how I regret not staying in the military. I really enjoyed my time in and, you know, would have been eligible for retirement like 10 years ago. Uh, <laughs> and, and maybe onto a second career or doing something different. Um, I really enjoy getting out in the garden with these uh, students today. And, you know, I have my little garden at home, but I've been able to take that to the next level uh, with a local, uh, you know, farm here in my community where I volunteer, uh, you know, uh, community garden, everything we grow. Some, somewhere upwards of 40,000 pounds a summer goes to the Rhode Island Community Food Bank and local food pantries and shelters. And I get students involved in that. So I can, I could see myself doing something like that. I just inherited a freight farm that's sitting right behind our high school in town. It's been inoperable for two and a half years. And we're trying to revive that. So a freight farm is a 40 foot shipping container. It has a hundred percent hydroponic farm inside of it. It's all self-contained. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, so I'm getting my students involved in that. Yeah. I could see myself doing something like that, but I'm also a big freaking geek, man. I could see myself, uh, you know, my first job offer outside of school in 1994 was a place in Ithaca, New York. It was Seaboard. We, they wrote software for managing inventory control. Well, I remember having to use the Seaboard program yeah, in culinary school yeah. way back when in my very first computer lab. Yeah, that was on your old Wang VS mainframe we had down there on campus with the yeah. little green green screen. And yeah, that was that was my first job offer. And I, I kind of I, I blew it off to work at the family business making machine parts for pasta machines. It would take 16 weeks to get a, 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 a replacement part for an Italian pasta machine. You know, in a manufacturing plant in New Jersey, we can make it in 24 hours. And charge four times as much because you, know, you didn't have to wait 16 weeks to get it. Well, I'd say one of the things I love about chefs is they seem to be some of the most giving people out there who want to really connect with their community, give their time, give their resources, their knowledge, and are just dedicated to helping people and feeding people. And that's one of the things I just love so much about this industry is I know very few people who work in this business who are not committed to helping people in some way. Well, that's it. We're notorious oversharers, you know, even, even with things that people don't want you to share with them. But um, <laughs> you le- yeah, like you said, you learn so much working in a kitchen. I've definitely felt like I've been a therapist slash guidance counselor in my years in the kitchen. Yeah, yesterday I was an EMT and somebody, you know, convulsing on the floor in the middle of the hack building, you know, and other people are standing around. I'm like, you know what? You got to get down there. This, this girl, she had like a five-minute seizure. I'm like, somebody call 911. Get paramedics down here. Let's, you know, get security down here. 
I'm trying to keep her from hitting her head on the wall, you know? Uh. But, you know, same thing. I call them peripheral, uh, you know, professions, if you will. You know, every cook, every chef, every restaurant owner is good at basic maintenance, is good at preventative maintenance, or they should be anyway, right? You know, you don't call a plumber to clean out the grease trap. You clean out the grease trap. You know, you don't call an electrician to fix a light switch. You fix a light switch or you put a cover over it so it doesn't get damaged anymore. Or you, you know, you troubleshoot those problems and you mitigate them for for the least expensive path that you can take. And you learn a lot about preventative maintenance and small equipment upkeep. And I always wanted to write a course for the school on, on like small appliance repair. You know, because I can get you a bearing in 24 hours for your KitchenAid mixer that you'd be waiting 16 weeks for, or, you know, you're going to pay somebody, you know, $400 to repair, you know, repair or replace. You know, I even went out and bought a uh, a spot welder so I could put the, you know, the little tabs on the KitchenAid oh, yeah. bowls, you know, when they break off and somebody has to buy a new bowl for, for $85 or Whatever it is, I'm like, yeah, you know, four four spot welds with this thing that I paid $125 for. I fixed four bowls. I made my money back on the equipment. Yo, know, even those, uh, what do you call them? The little, uh, you know, the chinois that get the little hook on the end that always breaks off. Put those things back on, man. Fix it. Yeah, you get to be really resourceful. That's it. Reduce, reuse, recycle, repair. That's the big one that most people miss. And to be sustainable in this industry, that's what you got to learn to do. And uh, and a lot of cooks are good at that, or, or they they find ways to rig things so that they continue to work even without those parts. They're creative by nature. Yeah. Well, you get that high stress, high you know, uh, you know tension situation where you got four hundred people waiting for you to get something out, and the only way to make it happen is to make it happen. Yeah, I've been there many times, as we all have. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate having you here tonight. Thanks for taking the time. I know we've had a late evening, but uh, I get some of my best work done at night. Chris, it was a blast. I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, it's it was great catching up. Thanks for coming on the show. And to all of our listeners, this has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Thanks so much, and have a great week. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community is free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.